Chapter Six, Section One of J. B. Bury's *The Student's Roman Empire*, Part One. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Julie Vermilion. *The Student's Roman Empire*, Part One, by John Bagnall Bury. Chapter Six: Provincial Administration under Augustus. The Western Provinces, 27 B.C. to 14 A.D. Section 1. General Organization of the Provinces When Augustus founded the Empire, the dominion of Rome stretched from the Atlantic to the Euphrates, from the German Ocean to the borders of Ethiopia. The lands which made up this empire had by no means the same political status. Rome, the mother and mistress of the empire stood by herself. She was a centre to which all the rest looked up. Next her, sharing in many respects her privileged position, was Italy. Outside this inner circle came the directly subject lands and communities, which were strictly under the sway, in Dicioni, of the Roman people. Outside these, again, came the lands and communities, which, while really under the sovereignty of Rome, preserved their independence and were not called subjects, but federate states and allies. And in each of these circles there were various kinds and subdivisions, according to the mode of their administration, or the limits imposed on their self-government. Thus the subjects of the Roman Empire were almost as heterogeneous in their political relations to their mistress as in race and language. It is to be observed that by Roman Empire we mean more than the Romans in strict speech meant by Imperium Romanum. We mean not only the provinces, but the independent allied states and client kingdoms in which the people were not the subjects of the Roman people, and the land was not the property of the Roman state. These federate and associated states were regarded legally as outside the Roman Phoenis, although the Foides or Alliance, really meant that they were under the sovereignty of Rome and the continuation of their autonomy depended solely on her will. There was no proper word in Latin to express the geographical circle which included both direct and the indirect subjects. Perhaps the nearest expression was Orbis Terrarum, the world, which often seems equivalent to the empire. For Roman law regarded all territory which was not either Roman or belonging to someone whose ownership Rome recognized as a property of no man outside the world. The chief mark of distinction between the autonomous and not autonomous communities was that the former taxed themselves, whereas the latter were taxed by Rome. In both cases, there were exceptions, but this was the general rule. And the land of the provincial communities, which were not autonomous, belonged to Rome, whereas the land of the autonomous states was not Roman. Originally, after the conquest of her earliest provinces, Rome had not appropriated the land, but this was a theoretic mistake, which he afterwards corrected when C. Gracchus organized Asia. Henceforward, all provincial territory was regarded as in the ownership of the Roman people. 
The Roman people might let the land anew to the former possessors at a fixed rent, and in most cases this was done. Thus the principle was that the provincial subjects occupied as tenants the land which they or their ancestors once owned. This rent was called tributum, or stipendium. A. The greater number of provincial communities in the time of Augustus were civitatis stipendiariae. The legal condition of these subjects was that of Peregrini diridici, but they were not called by this name. They were under the control of the governor of the province to which they belonged. B. Throughout the provinces there was a multitude of cities which possessed full Roman citizenship, and their number was continually increasing. But although, as far as personal rights were concerned, these cities were on a level with the cities of Italy, they were worse off in two particulars. They were obliged to pay tribute. The reason of this anomaly was a theoretic principle that provincial territory could not be alienated by its owner, the Roman people. The Ager Publicus Populi Romani, beyond the sea, could not become Ager Privatus Exure Quiritium. In other words, a provincial of Nabo, although a Roman citizen, could not be a creditary possessor of land in the Narbonese territory. He could only hold land of the Roman people, and must therefore pay rent for it. In the case, however, of some favoured communities, this principle was departed from as early as the time of Augustus. The privilege took one of two forms, either a grant of immunity from tribute, or the bestowal of jus italicum. The latter form, which was the more common, placed the territory of the community, which received it in the same position as the territory of Italy, and made it capable of creditary ownership. The provincial cities, which possessed jus italicum, marked their position by the external sign of a statue of a naked Salinus, with a wine-skin on his shoulder, which was called Marcius. This custom was imitated from the Marcius, which stood in the Roman Forum, as a symbol of the capital city. Besides being tributary, the provincial communities of Roman citizens were, like the peregrine communities, subject to the interference of the Roman governor. It is to be observed that these communities were either coloniae or municipia. In the course of Italian history, the word municipium had completely changed its meaning. Originally, it was applied to a community possessing jus latinum, and also to the civitas sine suffragio, and thus it was a term of contrast to those communities which possessed full Roman citizenship. But when in the course of time the Civitates sine suffragio received political rights, and the Roman states received full Roman citizenship, and thus the municipium proper disappeared from Italy, the word was still applied to those communities of Roman citizens, which had originally been either Latin municipia or independent federate states. And it also, of course, continued to be applied to cities outside Italy, which possessed jus latinum. It is clear that originally municipium and colonia were not incompatible ideas, for a colony founded with jus latinum was both a municipium and a 
Colonia. But a certain opposition arose between them, and became stronger when municipium came to be used in a new sense. Municipium is only used of communities which existed as independent states before they received Roman citizenship, whether by the deduction of a colony or not. Colonia is generally confined to those communities which were settled for the first time as Roman cities, and were never states before. Thus, municipium involves a reference to previous autonomy. C. Besides Roman cities, there were also Latin cities in the provinces. Originally, there were two kinds of jus latinum, one better and the other inferior. The old Latin colonies possessed the better kind, the inferior kind was known as jus of Ariminum, and it alone was extended to provincial communities. When Italy received Roman citizenship after the social war, the better kind of jus latinum vanished forever, and the lesser kind only existed outside Italy. The most important privilege, which distinguished the Latin from peregrine communities, was that a member of a Latin city had the prospect of obtaining full Roman citizenship by holding magistracies in his own community. The Latin communities are, of course, autonomous, and are not controlled by the provincial governor. But like Roman communities, they have to pay tribute for their land, which is the property of the Roman people, unless they possess immunity, or jus italicum, as well as jus latinum. D. Outside Roman territory, and formerly independent allies of Rome, though really her subjects, are the free states, Civitates Liberae, whether single republics, like Athens, or a league of cities, like Lycia. Constitutionally, they fall into two classes, one, Civitates Liberae, at Foideratae, or simply Foideratae, two, Civitates Sinifoidere Liberae, at immunes. States of the first class were connected with Rome by a foidus, which guaranteed some perpetual autonomy. In the case of the second class, no such foidus existed, and their autonomy, which was granted by Lex or Senatus Consultum, could at any moment be recalled. Otherwise, the position of the two classes did not differ. The sovereign rights of these free states were limited in the following ways by their relation to Rome. They were not permitted to have subject allies standing to themselves in the same relation in which they stood to Rome. They could not declare war on their own account, whereas every declaration of war and every treaty of peace made by Rome was valid for them also, without even a formal expression of consent on their part. Some of the free states, such as Athens, Sparta, Massilia, seem to have been exempted by the treaty from the burden of furnishing military contingents, both under the Republic and under the Empire. Others, on the other hand, were bound by treaty to perform service of this kind. Thus Rhodes contributed a number of ships every year to his Roman fleet. It is probable that the communities which were established as federate or Latin states under the Principati were subject to conscription. Theoretically, all the autonomous states should have been exempt from tribute, as the land was not Roman, 
There were exceptions to this rule, and some free cities, for example Byzantium, paid under the Principati a yearly tributum. E. The position of the client kingdoms was in some respects like that of the free autonomous states, but in other respects different. Both were allied with Rome, but independent of Roman governors. Both the free peoples who managed their own affairs and the kings who ruled their kingdoms were sulkii of the Roman people, and the land of both was outside the boundaries of Roman territory. But whereas in the case of the Civitatis Foiduratae, the Roman people entered into a permanent relation with a permanent community, in the case of kingdoms, the relation was only a personal treaty with a king, and came to an end at his death. Thus, when a client king died, Rome might either renew the same relation with his successor, or else, without any formal violation of a treaty, convert the kingdom into a province. This last policy was constantly adopted under the Principati, so that by degrees all the chief client principalities disappeared, and the provincial territory increased in corresponding measure. Even under the Republic, the dependent princes paid fixed annual tributes to Rome. F. The treatment of Egypt by Augustus formed a new departure in the organization of the subject lands of Rome. It was, as we have seen, united with the Roman Empire by a sort of personal union, like that by which Luxembourg was still recently united with Holland. The sovereign of the Roman state was also sovereign of Egypt. He did not, indeed, designate himself as king of Egypt any more than as king of Rome, but practically he was the successor of the Ptolemies. This principle was applied to dependent kingdoms which were afterwards annexed to the empire, such as Noricum and Judea. Such provinces were governed by knights instead of senators as in the provinces proper and these knights, who were entitled prefects or procurators, represented the emperor personally. It is clear that this form of government was not possible until the republic had become a monarchy, and there was one man to represent the state. g. To make the picture of the manifold modes in which Rome governed her subjects complete, there must still be mentioned the unimportant class of attributed places. This was a technical name for small peoples or places, which counted as neither states nor districts, pagi, and were placed under or attributed to a neighboring community. Only federate towns or towns possessing either Roman citizenship or use Latinum had attributed places. This attribution was especially employed in the Alpine districts small mountain tribes being placed under the control of cities like Turgesti or Brixia. The inhabitants of the attributed places often possessed use Latinum, and as they had no magistrate of their own, they were permitted to be candidates for magistracies in the state to which they were attributed. They could thus become Roman citizens. It is to be carefully observed that while the subjects of Rome fell into the two general classes of autonomous and not autonomous, the not autonomous communities possessed municipal self-government. The provinces, like Italy, were organized on the principle of local self-government. In those lands, where the town system was already developed, 
the Roman conqueror gladly left to the cities their constitutions, and allowed them to manage their local affairs, just as of old, only taking care that they should govern themselves on aristocratic principles. Rome even went further, and based her administration everywhere on the system of self-governing communities, introducing it in those provinces where it did not already exist, and founding towns on the Italian model. The local authorities in each provincial community had to levy the taxes and deliver them to the proper Roman officers. Representatives of each community met yearly in a provincial concilium. For judicial purposes, districts of communities existed in which the governor of the province dealt out justice. These districts were called conventus. It thus appears that the stipendary communities also enjoyed autonomy, a tolerated autonomy, of a more limited kind than that of the free and the federate communities. The Roman governors did not interfere in the affairs of any community in their provinces, where merely municipal matters not affecting imperial interests were concerned. It also appears that those not anonymous communities which had obtained exemption from tribute practically approximated to the autonomous, whereas those nominally independent states in which tribute was nevertheless levied approximated to the dependent. Here we touch upon one of the great tendencies which marked the policy of Augustus in the administration of the empire. This was a gradual abolition of that variety which at the end of the Republic existed in the relations between Rome and her subjects. There was, one, the great distinction between Italy and the provinces, and there were, two, the various distinctions between the provincial communities themselves. From the time of the first princeps onward, we can trace the gradual wiping out of these distinctions, until the whole empire becomes uniform. 1. The provinces receive favours which raise them towards the level of Italy, while Italy's privileges are diminished, and she is depressed towards the level of the provinces. But this change takes place more gradually than 2 the working out of uniformity among the other parts of the empire, which can be traced even under Augustus, who promoted this end by a. Limiting the autonomy of free and federate states, b. Increasing the autonomy of the directly subject states, c. Extending Roman citizenship, g. Converting client principalities into provincial territory. But perhaps... The act of Augustus, which most effectually promoted this tenancy, was his reorganization of the army, which has been described in the foregoing chapter. While hitherto the legions were recruited from Roman citizens only, and the provinces were exempt from ordinary military service, although they were liable to be called upon in cases of necessity, Augustus made all the subjects of the empire, whether Roman citizens or not, whether Italians or provincials, liable to regular military service. The legions were recruited not from Italy only, but from all the cities of the empire, whether Roman, Latin, or Peregrini. And the recruit, as soon as he entered the legion, became a Roman citizen. The auxilia were recruited from those subject communities which were not formed as cities, and no Roman citizens belonged to these corps.
Such communities now occupied somewhat the same position as the Italic peoples had formerly occupied in relation to Roman citizens. It will be readily seen that a new organization of the legions, by largely increasing the number of Roman citizens, and by raising the importance of the provinces, tended in the direction of uniformity. It has already been stated that in the provincial administration, as in other matters, a division was made by Augustus between the emperor and the senate. Henceforward there are senatorial provinces and imperial provinces. The provinces which fell to the share of the senate were chiefly those which were peaceable and settled, and were not likely to require the constant presence of military forces. The emperor took charge of those which were likely to be troublesome, and might often demand the intervention of the imperator and his soldiers. Thus, 27 B.C., Augustus received as his proconsular province Syria, Gaul, and Hisa, Spain. With Syria was connected the defence of the eastern frontier. Gaul, which as yet was a single province, he had to protect against the Germans beyond the Rhine, and Hispania Quiterior, or Taraconensis, laid on him the conduct of the Cantabrian War. To the Senate were left Sicily, Africa, Crete, and Cyrene, Asia, Bithynia, Illyricum, Macedonia, Achaia, Sardinia, and further Spain, Baetica. In this division there was an attempt to establish a balance between the dominion of the emperor, who had also Egypt, though not as a province, and the senate. But the balance soon wavered in favour of the emperor, and the imperial provinces soon outweighed the senatorial in number as well as importance. When new provinces were added to the empire, they were made imperial. After the division of 27 B.C., several changes took place during the reign of Augustus, but before we consider the provinces separately, it is necessary to speak of the general differences between the senatorial and the imperial government. The Roman provinces were at first governed by praetors, but Sulla made a new arrangement by which the governors should be no longer praetors in office, but men who had been praetors, under the title of proprietors. This change introduced a new principle into the provincial government. Henceforward, the governors are proconsuls and proprietors. Under the empire of those governors who are not subordinate to a magistrate with higher authority than their own, are proconsuls. Those who have a higher magistrate above them are proprietors. The governors of the senatorial provinces were all proconsuls, as they were under the control of no superior magistrate, whereas the governors of the imperial provinces were under the proconsular authority of the emperor, and were therefore only proprietors. The distinction between governors proconsuli and governors propraetore must not be confused with the distinction between consular praetorian provinces. A proprietor might be either of praetorian or of consular rank, and a proconsul might be either of consular or of praetorian rank. In the case of the senatorial provinces, a definite line was drawn between consular and praetorian provinces. It was finally arranged that only consulars were appointed to Asia and Africa, only praetorians to the rest. In the imperial provinces, 
The line does not seem to have been so strict. As a rule, the Praetorian governor commanded only one legion, the consular more than one. The proconsuls, or governors of the provinces which the Senate administered, were elected as of old by lot, and only held office for a year. They were assisted in their duties by legati and quaestors, who possessed an independent proprietorian imperium. The proconsul of consular rank, attended by twelve lictors, had three legati appointed by himself, and one quaestor at his side. He of praetorian rank, attended by six lictors, had one legatus and one quaestor. The governors of the imperial provinces were entitled Legati Augusti Propradori. They were appointed by the emperor, and their constitutional position was that the emperor delegated to them his imperium. But only councillors or praetorians, and therefore only senators, could be appointed. Their term of governorship was not necessarily limited to a year, like that of the proconsuls, but depended on the will of the emperor. The financial affairs of the imperial provinces were managed by procuratores, generally of equestrian rank, but sometimes freed men. They were also for jurisdiction legati augusti juridici, of senatorial rank, but it is not certain whether they were instituted under Augustus. But while the Senate had no part in the administration of the imperial provinces, except in so far as the governors were chosen from among senators, the emperor had powers of interfering in the affairs of the senatorial provinces by virtue of the imperium maius, which he possessed over other proconsuls. Moreover, he could levy troops in the provinces of the senate, and exercise control over taxation. Thus, the supply of corn from Africa, a senatorial province, went to the emperor, not to the senate. In both kinds of provinces alike, the governors combined supreme civil and military authority, but the proconsuls had rarely, except in the case of Africa, military forces of any importance at their disposition. Thus, there were two sets of provincial governors, those who represented the Senate, and those who represented the Emperor. It might be thought at first sight that the senatorial governors would be jealous of the Imperial, who had legions under them and a longer tenure of office. But this danger was obviated by the important circumstance that the legati were chosen from the same class as the proconsuls, and thus the same man who was one year proconsul of Asia might the next year be appointed legatus of Syria. In reviewing the provinces of the Roman Empire, we may begin with the western and proceed eastward. With the exception of Africa and Sardinia, there were no subject lands which Augustus did not visit as Caesar, if not as Augustus. In 27 BC he went to Gaul, and thence to Spain, where he remained until 24 BC, conducting the Cantabrian War. Two years later he visited Sicily, whence he proceeded to the east, Samos, Asia, and Bithynia, settled the Parthian question, and returned to Rome in 19 B.C. In 16 B.C. he made a second visit to Gaul, in the company of Tiberius, and stayed in the Gallic provinces for three years. In 10 B.C. he visited Gaul again, and in 8 B.C. for the fourth time. 
Henceforward he did not leave Italy, but deputed the work of provincial organization to those whom he marked out to be his successors. End of chapter 6, section 1